2 Corinthians chapter 8 and reading verses 1 to 9. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to testify the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Turning over to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now... He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now, we all know that Christmas is a time for generosity. It's a time to be generous and and to give. Boys and girls, it's not always about receiving. It's about giving at Christmas. It's good to remember that. And there are lots of uh, great films and stories that remind us of that. And one of the things that we love to do as a family, one of our Christmas traditions, is to watch A Christmas Carol. Now, I'm afraid we're not particularly cultured because we enjoy the version put together by the legendary Fespians, the Muppets. And uh, the Muppets Christmas Carol is one of our favourite Christmas movies that we watch together. And the story, um, I'm told, is very close to the original. 
uh, that Scrooge, of course, is transformed from a miserly, money-grabbing, cold-hearted man to become a generous giver full of the warmth and joy of Christmas. And the reason for the change in Scrooge is that he is given a new perspective on life and what really matters. He's made to think about the past and and the present and and the future. And there is this remarkable change in him overnight from Christmas Eve to Christmas Day morning. The message of Christmas, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is what Christmas is all about, can be truly life-changing. And this morning, we are going to consider that very question. How does the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that means transform not just how we think about the question of giving, which is what Paul's speaking about in 2 Corinthians 8, but actually how it transforms all of our life. It changes our attitude to everything. And I've gone to this passage because it's really interesting that that Paul, in a section in 2 Corinthians where he's talking about giving, in a passage where he's trying to encourage and motivate some Christians to give to the needs of, from Corinth, to the needs of Christians in Jerusalem, he wants to open their hearts and and open their wallets to the needs of other Christians elsewhere in the world. He, He does this by pointing them to the example of other believers in Macedonia and says they have overflowed in generosity and the grace of giving. But then he uses something else, something even more powerful to press home the need for generosity. And it is the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. In, in the passage, he doesn't use the word money. Did you notice that? But he uses the word grace. And he says, these other Christians in Macedonia have shown great grace. And their example is challenging. But there is an even more wonderful, there is an even more glorious, there is an even more persuasive example of grace. And it is the coming of Christ. And so it's fitting in this season in the year where we think about the coming of Christ, that we focus our attention upon these realities, these eternal realities. So we're going to zone in on verse 9, the final verse that Rich read, that says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty, so that you through his poverty might become rich. I don't intend to spend a lot of time speaking about giving this morning. If you're interested in knowing more about that, I commend Andy Price's sermon to you from a few Sunday evenings ago in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and the first few verses. But rather, I'd like us to focus in on verse 9 because it is such a powerful statement of the significance of the coming of Christ. If you're um, ever trying to grasp a book, whether it's for preparation for an exam or revision or or just grasping a subject by reading a book, sometimes you're wading through the content and you're getting through it and you come to a sentence which captures the meaning of the whole book. And if there is a sentence, or this may be one of the sentences in Scripture, 
that captures for us the center of what Christ came to do. And it's all about Christ's grace. That's the center of the message of the Bible. And maybe you're here today and you're, you're new to church and Christianity or you've got some background in Christianity and you're wondering, well, what's it all about? Well, can I just say to you that the center of the message of the Bible is that we can only know the God of heaven according to grace. Not according to, to good works, not according to being, being religious, not according to trying harder because none of us can meet that standard. The only way is by grace. And so, I trust that with God's help, you'll come to see more of this wonderful message that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to see three things this morning as we focus in on this verse. We're going to see that none was richer than he, as we think of the Lord Jesus. We're going to see that none was poorer than he, as we think of his incarnation and particularly his death on on the cross. And as we think of the implication for us, we're going to see that none is made wealthier than those who believe. Those will be our three points. So our first one, none was richer than he. To understand the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to grasp, I need to grasp, how rich he was and is and ever will be, and to see something of what he sacrificed in coming to this world. If you look down at verse 9, There in the reading, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich. Now, in the original there, Paul chooses a particular word that means exceedingly rich. Not just normally quite wealthy, exceedingly rich. Very, very wealthy. So how is Christ so very rich? We're going to see four things. He is rich in his person. Four sub-points. He is rich in his person. And here we're thinking about the the personal identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if I was to ask you this morning, where does the story of Jesus' life begin in the Bible? What might you say? Well, you and I would probably say, well, in, in, in Matthew's gospel or in Luke's gospel, in the story of his incarnation and birth. But if we start there, we'd be missing something. We'd miss a lot, friends, because the Bible declares to us the astonishing truth That the Lord Jesus Christ, whilst he was born into this world in uh, the beginning of Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, we have the narrative there. That is not where he began because he had no beginning. He is the eternal God. In John chapter 1 and verse 1 to 3, we read this. And the word here, as you hear the word word, you hear word, think Jesus. That's who John is speaking of. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So friends, in terms of the story of the Bible, where does Jesus' life story begin? Where do we first read about him? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It's not his beginning, but it's the first way in which he's referred to in Scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the eternal triune God who is Father, Son and Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was there at the beginning, involved in the very creation of this world. Because the Lord Jesus is the eternal God, equal to the Father and the Spirit in his full divinity. And so as we read in Colossians chapter 1, 
And we were struck by those verses in Colossians chapter 1. Weren't they astonishing as we read about the Lord Jesus and all that he is? We read Colossians 1 verse 15. The Son, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So as you see Jesus, you see God. That is what we're reading in there. And then as we jump down to verse 19, we say, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. So there is nothing lacking of the fullness of the eternal God, if there's such a concept, (laughs) in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is rich in his person. But not only that, friends, he is rich in his position. Because where was the Lord Jesus before he came into this world, before he was born there in Bethlehem? Well, he was in heaven. He was there with the Father and the Spirit. In John chapter 1 and verse 2, we read, He was with God in the beginning, with God the Father in heaven. Now, what is heaven like? Heaven is a place of purity and perfection. Heaven is a place of absolute holiness and glory. How can we grasp, how can we get our our, our minds around this? Well, maybe we might think, to get our minds around it, of the most perfect place you know on this earth. What's your favourite beach? For me, it's Porthmere Beach in St Ives when the sun is shining and the waves are splashing And it's just glorious, and the kids are all happy. (laughs) That's nothing. That's nothing compared to the glory and the greatness of heaven. As the same man, Paul, in his first letter, 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9, seeks to capture something of the greatness of heaven where the Lord Jesus was for all of eternity before he came. He says this in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. You have not seen anything as glorious as heaven. You have not heard of anything as glorious as heaven. And you cannot think of anything as great and as glorious as heaven. Such is the glory of heaven. And Jesus Christ was rich in his eternal position. But not only that, friends, not was he only rich in his person and his position, he was rich in his possessions. In Colossians 1 and verse 16 we read, let's, let's go to it, in Colossians 1 and verse 16, we read, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. That means, friends, that Jesus Christ owns everything. He owns you. He owns your house. He owns Leamington Spa. He owns Warwickshire. He owns the United Kingdom. He owns the continent of Europe. He owns the whole world. He owns the universe with the moon and the sun and the stars and the planets. He owns the lot. 
You know, when you fill in an application for, I don't know, sort of like an insurance, and you have to say whether you're a homeowner who owns outright, or whether you're a tenant and you're living there, or whether you're living with your parents, or whether you're or something else, what it is. That first category is not really true, is it? We don't own it. It's his. We're tenants. He owns everything. This glorious Jesus Christ, who is rich in his person, and rich in his position, and rich in his possessions. But not only that, one final thing. He is rich in his praise. And by that I mean the praise that he received in heaven, eternal praise before he came. And in John 17 and in verse 5, Jesus says this, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Christ knew unending glory before the world began. He knew the unending worship and praise and glory of the angels worshipping him. If you want to get a sense of what that might look like as Isaiah gets a sight into the throne room in heaven in Isaiah chapter 6. There in verses 1 to 3 we read this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and a train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Those phrases, those statements apply to the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, think of this. In that little phrase, where Paul said to us, he was rich. Paul was telling us something crucial about the Lord Jesus Christ. It is that he has and will eternally live. He didn't come into existence in his birth. Please do not think that. He is the God who as is and will and ever will be. Such is the riches, or such are, I should say, the riches of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you want to know something of his grace, and I hope you do today, you need to see something of what he left in coming to this earth. Christ left so much. Now, we must be careful here. He did not leave the riches of his person. He never ceased to be God. I think we would want to also say he never left the riches of his possessions. The whole earth was and is and ever will be his. But I think we could say that he left the riches of his position there beside the Father as he came and he left the riches of the praises of heaven to come to this earth. And so we come to our second point. None was richer than he. But then secondly, none became poorer than he. Paul says there in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. 
Now, remember that when Paul used the word for rich, he talked about exceedingly great riches. And here, as he uses the word for poverty, he uses a particular word to communicate extreme poverty. So he's talking in terms of great extremes, of great riches to great poverty. So what may he have in view? Well, there are at least two things in view. There is the poverty of his incarnation. So we might say the poverty of his life. That the God of heaven was coming from the glory of heaven to this world. So as we think about Christ coming into this world and being born in the major, this was not just any baby. Although he was a true, real, human baby boy. No, this is God coming down and becoming a real human person. In the last battle, C.S. Lewis last battle, Lucy says this lovely phrase where she says, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. It's great, isn't it? And that's what Jesus was doing, something of what he was doing in his incarnation. And we're going to think about that, but also... So we've got the poverty of his life, but also there's the poverty of his death. And we're going to think about the atonement and what he went through because he came to die. So let's think about those. The poverty of his life and his incarnation. Let's think about his life in general and think about the circumstances of his birth. It was a poor birth. And then we think about the poverty of his life in general. I mean, he lived in Nazareth. Nazareth is hardly the Leamington Spa of Israel. It's not, friends. It's an unglamorous area of Israel. He was born to poor parents who had very little. His father was a manual laborer. I was listening to Rico Tice this week, and Rico said, well, you can imagine the angels saying to the Lord God, Lord, couldn't we try somewhere better than Nazareth and these circumstances for the birth of the King of Kings? And not only that, it's likely his earthly father, Joseph, died at some point during his childhood or youth because there's no reference to Joseph later on in the Gospels during his ministry. So he has great poverty in his life, but not only that, he has great poverty in those three years of public ministry. There he was going around and teaching and and doing astonishing miracles and demonstrating his greatness. He had no permanent home, just I mean, think of that, friends. You and I, what do we do when we need to relax? We go home. We go to the place that we know that we've set up so that it'd be comfortable for us. But what does Scripture say? The Son of Man had nowhere to lay down his head. He had no home. But not only that, he's rejected by many. He speaks the truth. And what do they say? Well, many say, get away from us and turn away from him. But not only that, he's troubled and persecuted by the religious leaders. The scripture says he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And that points to his death, but also all of his life. You know, sometimes when you see on television there's a, or a picture of the prime minister who's gone to visit maybe Ukraine. And I'm glad Rishi Sunak went and, and Boris went. That's a good thing. But you know when they get there, you look at the picture, they're surrounded by SAS soldiers, aren't they? And they've all got the weapons, they've all got the headsets, and okay, there's a bit of risk, but they're very safe, aren't they, really? Jesus Christ was not safe in that sense. 
he came in great poverty. But not only that, think of the poverty of his experience still as we think about his life. Think of the mess and the sin as he looked around at the world that he had made. The world that he had created, as the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, that it was good, 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 and very good. What had we done to it? What had humanity done to that world? I mean, how might we think of this? Well, imagine you had bought a run-down house and then spent a huge amount doing it up. And you'd made it into a lovely home. And then you come back 40 years later, having sold it on to somebody else, and you find that it's become a slum. And it's occupied by squatters. The walls that you painted with your own hands have been covered with graffiti and rubbish and other things as well. I mean, think of it, friends. And he knew all that in the poverty of his life so that he might become poor in his death. And here we come to the heart of the atonement. Now let's think a little bit about this. Think of the anticipation of that atonement. The Lord Jesus Christ would have heard Isaiah 53 as a child and a young man and an adult read in the synagogue. And he would have known it was speaking of him. Think of it, friends. Then the, anti- then the preparation for his death, where he's arrested falsely and he's brought before trial on charges that are trumped up. He goes before three different courts in hope of the possibility of some sense of justice, but he is completely mistreated. Then when he's sentenced, he is beaten and he is mocked. And then he carries his own cross as he prepares for his death. And then you've got his suffering, haven't you? As he goes and he dies. And you've got the physical suffering that Cicero, the great Roman orator, described the cross as the most cruel of all punishments. But friends, that is just scratching the surface of what Jesus went through. Because you have the spiritual suffering where he experiences death and judgment for you, if you are trusting in him. Leighton Ford sums it up like this. He says that Jesus was born in a borrowed home, preached from the sea on a borrowed boat, rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey, celebrated the Last Supper on a borrowed table in a borrowed room, and then having died on the cross, was buried in a borrowed tomb. But there's more, isn't there? (laughs) And the key thing that Paul wants us to see and the God of heaven wants us to see in 2 Corinthians 8 is the contrasts. That he left the glory of heaven and the worship of angels to be thrown into the dirt and insulted by soldiers. That he left the honour of being the centre of all things to be cast away like a common criminal and sentenced to death. 
that as the only one who deserved a life of bliss and happiness, instead he knew a life of sorrows and pain ending in horrible suffering. Do you see it? Do you? Do you see what he went through? I don't know if you saw this week in the news, Netflix published their list of most popular shows and how many hours people spent watching them. And there was one show that people spent more than 800 million hours watching worldwide. This, friends, is far more captivating. This, friends, is far more breathtaking than any story ever told. And if you're not seeing it, and it doesn't leave you speechless, then please look longer. But Jesus didn't just come so that we might see incredible contrast of the glory to the dirt of this world. He came to do something for those who believe. And here we come to our third point. No one was richer than he. No one was poorer than he. But none are wealthier than those who believe. Look back with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. And I just want you to notice, if you have look in front of you, look at how many times Paul uses the word you or your. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Do you see how personal it is, friends? Christ gave so that you and I might receive. That's really interesting in that verse, that Paul does not describe us as poor. And you might think that would be the natural deduction from the fact that we have been enriched and made wealthy through the work of Christ. But I wonder if we might say we are not just poor, We're worse than poor, are we not? In fact, the Bible would tell us that we are debtors as sinners. Not just that we have nothing, but we have a negative balance before the God of heaven. So it's not just that we have no credit before the God of heaven. It is that you and I, through our thoughts and words and deeds, through doing what we should not and neglecting to do what we should have, both sins of commission and omission, we have incurred a huge debt before the God of heaven. And as Jesus looks at every person in the world, he sees us as debtors. I wonder, is that how you see yourself and how you see others? I was on the parade in Leamington Spa yesterday, and sometimes I have a bad habit. It's not great, I know, but I I watch people. And as I watched people, you think, well, on the parade, what what are we there? Well, we're there 
doing our shopping and we've got our nice coats on and we've got our nice shopping bags with our presents in containing nice gifts and we drive home in nice cars and we live in nice homes and it seems like everything is fine. It's nice. But as Christ looks at every human being, me and all of us here, he sees us as debtors because of our sin. And that makes what Jesus did even more glorious because he hasn't just made us rich going from poverty to riches. He's paid our debts and then made us rich. And that's what Jesus did on the cross because our debt of sin before the God of heaven was taken by Jesus Christ. And as he died, as he suffered in the place of those who will believe, he was punished for us, for you, if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus. So he went, as many have said, from the cradle to the cross that he took the sins of those who will trust him so that they're paid for, they're gone. And friends, what I want us to see this morning is that that makes us rich beyond measure. Four ways it makes us rich. It makes us rich in forgiveness. You and I have the privilege, if we're looking to Jesus Christ by faith, of a clear conscience before the God of heaven. In Colossians, as it was read to us, we heard that the Lord Jesus Christ, what did he do? Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior, that's our debt. But now he, that's Jesus, has reconciled you by by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish And free from accusation. That means, friends, a totally clear conscience if you're trusting in Jesus Christ. It means when you get up in the morning, you can say, I'm forgiven. And my conscience is clear. It means when you go to bed at night, you can say, I'm forgiven. And you can sleep in peace, knowing that if you died that night, you'd be safe. Or if you died that day, you'd be safe. Because not only do you have the riches of forgiveness, you have the riches of fellowship with God. The riches of fellowship with God into eternity, and we'll come to that in a moment. But, but think of it today. Today, friends, you know God if you're trusting in Jesus Christ. And that means whatever happens in life, whatever you face, he's with you. And you know the riches of belonging. You've been adopted into the family of God. You are never lonely. Never lonely. Because God is with you. And you belong to him. And then you have riches of future hope. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 4 to 7. There, Paul, speaking of the, the work of Jesus Christ, he says... Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 7. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ 
and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, that's present, that's your fellowship with God today, in order that in the coming ages, here's the future, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. What does that mean, friends? It means that you can look forward to, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, to future incomparable riches. It's a great thing, isn't it? To know God. And why do we know this? We know this all because of Christ's grace to us. And it's said often, but it's worth re-saying. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Bill Gates has millions. Bill Gates gives away millions through his foundation. But it never really costs him, does it? He gives out of the abundance of his riches in a very helpful way, in lots of ways, but it doesn't cost him. Jesus Christ gave out of the abundance of his riches in the most costly of ways he could have given so that you might be rich beyond measure. So what do we say? What do we say? Well, maybe we respond as a song says, what gift of grace is Jesus my redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. So how should we respond? Three things for us to think about as we close. First, let us receive this gift of God's grace. One of the biggest mistakes people make about Christianity is they hear of all that Christ has done and they think, I need to earn it and merit it. He's done so much and maybe you thought, wow, he's done all this for me from the glory of heaven to the poverty of his life and his death. He did it for me. What? I've got to do something for him. And, and in terms of salvation and being right with God, friends, you cannot earn it. It's not like the Christmas card. You know when you get the Christmas card from the person you forgot to include on your Christmas card list? And so what you do, you always keep some spare cards and you go to the dresser, you get them out and you send them the card because you don't want to forget sending them a card because they've sent one to you. You've got a like for like, as it were. Salvation is not like that. Christ offers to you and to me the greatest of gifts, which is for us to receive. So will you receive it? Do not be like the rich fool who gained the whole world and yet lost his soul. You might have great things in this world. You might have great riches. You might have a lovely family. You might have wonderful intelligence. You might have a great career. And those are all blessings from God. But do not gain the whole world and lose your soul. That would be a tragedy. Repent, believe, and receive God's grace in Jesus Christ. Receive the gift. Secondly, be generous. 
That's how we started, isn't it? And that's what Paul is particularly speaking about in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 9. And it is right to say that God's great gift of Christ melts our cold hearts and it loosens our grips on our possessions. It, it opens our wallets to the needs of others. You think back to the Christmas carol with Ebenezer Scrooge, a different perspective changed him, but it was not anything like as great as this perspective that we have in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. You know, we've, we've got our Christmas offering this year, haven't we? We do it every year as a church. It doesn't go in any way to the work of Emmanuel Church. It goes overseas, and this year it's going to another country to help provide for other Christians in need. Could you, could I, consider giving a tithe from what we would spend on our Christmas gifts towards our overseas gifts? 10%? 20%? Could we think of that as we celebrate God's great gift of Jesus? So let's be generous. But then thirdly, let's be thankful. Let's be thankful. You know, 2 Corinthians 9, 15, what does Paul say? Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And that is to be the heart of Christmas. That is what should give us joy. As we meet around the table and as we eat with family and friends, we're thankful for all of God's blessings, but most of all, God's blessing of Jesus and his gift. And so whatever Christmas might bring for you, I hope it brings exceeding joy. I hope it brings exceedingly great joy, but it might bring sickness, it might bring sadness, it could bring disappointment. But whatever it brings, 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 is true. And you and I can say, that I am richer than I could ever imagine because I know the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Dear God, we give you our thanks and our praise for the indescribable, astounding gift that is ours in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, would you forgive us when we forget all that our Saviour did and left in coming to this world to become poor in all that that means so that we might be rich. Lord, we pray that would by your spirit, be used in our lives to bring about incredible generosity and real, deep, heartfelt, enduring joy. And we pray this for Jesus' glory's sake. Amen.